listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, May 23rd, 2014. This week, episode 328 comes to you from the beautiful campus of Purdue University in Lafayette, Indiana. We are, uh, both the Z-Man and I are here at the table. Cliff in the man building, right? In the man building, that's right. We also have a wonderful panel that will be joining us here in a moment. Back in the studio at the controls is our engineer, Jessica Lawson. Good afternoon. Good day, Jess. And, of course, joining us for the roundup will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Today's segment will be an interview. We're coming to you live from the International Institute for Infrastructure Conference at Purdue University here in Indiana. We have Dr. Randy Rapp, Dr. Robert Cox, Dr. Brian Hubbard, Dr. Mark Charette, the... Uh, Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli, and the Z-Man. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine Your source for cleaning and maintenance news Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products Alright, so most listeners know you can either stream the show directly from our homepage, iaqradio.com, or follow the link that says go to show, and of course you can download us from the iTunes podcast section. We also have continuing education credits available for the ABIH, the ACAC, and the IICRC. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. competing fellow IEQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com or if you're listening to the show live, you can text them the answer via your computer. Congratulations. John Lapo Pair Indoor Air Quality Solutions, Orlando, Florida, for nudging out last week's contestants with $40.8 billion as the American Rental Association's financial forecast for the total equipment rental in North America in 2014. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, May 23, 2014, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standouts, or standards and events. Their website is www.trsca.com. Now for this week's trivia question. 
What do Virgil Grissom, the second American to go into space, Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon, and Chesley Sully Sullenberger, who landed Flight 1549 successfully in the Hudson River, have in common? Back to you, Joe. All right, thank you, Cliff. We've got a distinguished panel today. I had a great time this week at the conference here at Purdue. We've got Mr. Mark Charette. He's an associate professor at Purdue University here in West Lafayette, Indiana, and he teaches and administers the Purdue Department of Building Construction Management, which we will abbreviate to BCM from here, Demolition and Reconstruction Concentration. We also have Pete Consigli, the RIA Industry Advisor and RIA Certified Restore and Water Law Specialist. Pete has been a supporter and liaison for the RIA to Purdue University's Disaster Restoration and Reconstruction Management Concentration and guest lectured to students on the unique challenges of restoration project management. Robert F. Cox, Ph.D., is the Associate Dean for Globalization and Engagement in the College of Technology at Purdue University. As Associate Dean, he's responsible for the overall strategic planning and execution of all international activities and engagement efforts on behalf of the College of Technology. And Dr. Cox was also the conference chair. We also have the co-chair with us, Dr. Brian Hubbard, an associate professor in the Building Construction and Management BCM program at Purdue. He teaches courses in plan reading, estimating, and industrial construction. His research interests include construction safety, industrial and nuclear construction, and workforce training. Last but not least, Cliff, Randy Rapp, uh, who did all the heavy lifting behind the scenes. Uh, Randy documented success in an assortment of progressively more sensitive and complex construction and engineering supervisory leadership and managerial positions, domestically and internationally, in both operational and supporting functions, from direct supervision of construction forces and activities on the job site and in the project office to the executive office from small project teams to large and diverse organizations. And Randy is also a professor, associate professor at the school of BCM here in, uh, in at Purdue. Randy, um, you know, we've known you for quite a while. I'd like to start with you for just a moment. Uh, we came here for the, the conference and I, oh, wait, I'm sorry, Cliff. We have some music, right? Here. You've got to introduce the music. Jess?
such a panel session. So it speaks for itself. It was fantastic. Great job, Pete. And, and this is the 10th International Conference. This is the 10th. So next year you'll be in Seoul, South Korea, as I understand it. Okay. And um, we had a nice presentation from Seoul, the people from Seoul. We had people from all over the world. Cliff, do you remember some of the countries we had? Uh, we, had oh, Canadian, we had Norway. We had um, Canada. Uh, uh, New Zealand. New Zealand. Uh, we had the Brits, the people from uh, yeah. Korea, from China, from all over the world. Japan. Japan. Great, great crowd. All right, let's Sri Lanka, yeah, yeah, great conference. New Zealand, all over the world. Anyway, I want to turn it over to uh, Dr. Cox. You were the conference chair, and um, I wonder how you see disaster resilience, restoration, etc., related activities. You know, kind of playing into your vision at the College of Technology for Globalization. You're the dean for globalization. How does this work into what you're doing at the school? I can't think of a, a, a better topic than disaster resilience or disaster uh, recovery that gets the attention of the globe. Uh, and if you want to touch the heartstrings of young students, uh, they, uh, I mean, Purdue's got some of the highest concentration of international students on its campus, and global awareness certainly surrounds these uh, natural disasters. And if you think of the thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that are affected every day of our lives by disasters, it certainly becomes a platform on which we can uh, collaborate and actually encourage future global collaboration amongst our students as well as our colleagues on campus and with our collaborative partners worldwide. You know, you had so many speakers from the World Health Organization, from, from all these large international groups, and I'm curious, which, is there a presentation that, you know, you, you picked up something that really caught your attention and you didn't know before that really, you know, you want to get through to our listeners? I think the, the presentation by Joseph Lightman from the World Bank, uh, when you look at some of the sheer numbers that have been involved in the recent projects that he's worked on, when he shared the case studies, whether it was the, the Haiti earthquake or whether it's been the tsunami effects or even what's going on in South Sudan, I mean, the, the reality is when you start putting numbers behind the pictures, it becomes very, very devastating. He painted a great picture too. That guy, he was tremendous. You know, he's great. talking about. You know, he's in a room with and Bill Clinton. Oh, he even did a little impersonation of Bill Clinton. You know, <laughs> uh, Bill Clinton's telling him how the you know you know the money should go to Clinton Foundation. Foundation. Not to, you know, but he was very. You know, he stood up for. It. He actually showed how to redirect the questions. I think, Mr. President, what you're trying to say is, and he did a great job. He was Value-added, I think. I value-added, right, right. Great job. Uh, Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Thanks. Um, the College of Technologies Building Construction Management Program has an excellent reputation for service learning projects and has been actively involved in alternative spring break activities. Instead of going down to Daytona Beach and wearing bikinis, you have people that are out working and, and being productive and, and making the, the choice uh, to do this. Can you share a little bit about uh, these efforts, uh, both nationally and internationally? Give that to Dr. Cox. Yeah, all right. I, uh, well, well, Cliff, one of the things that uh, we've, we've always been very, very proud of, besides having one of the best-known construction management programs in the country, if not the world, is the fact that our students actually have some sense of goodwill and stewardship with respect to the communities. And so when you have a group of students who come to you 
who actually asked for help to go on an alternative spring break down to the Gulf Coast regions that are still under blue tarps and houses that still haven't been rebuilt from the series of, of hurricanes from the uh, early 2000 all the way through late 2010. Um, that, that really shows you that our students are, are, are well-informed uh, and they're, they're civic-minded with respect to um, actually trying to make an impact. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't go down there and work 24 hours a day. We realize that it did create an opportunity for them to do two things. I mean, we have lives, right. and we have a way to give back. And so I'm very proud of that. that that's happened several years in a row through our National Association of Home Builders and our um, housing. Help me. National Association of Home Builders. Affordable housing. Affordable housing, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Habitat. Habitat. Sorry, Habitat. Sorry, 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 I drew a blank. I mean, when you're around people like Cliff, it's, it, it, sometimes you draw a blank. <laughs> but, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but internationally, we've actually included service learning projects uh, over the last five years in Costa Rica. And uh, a, a lot of that is not necessarily dealing with uh, uh, re recovery, but a lot of it has to do with resilience and providing uh, you know, substantial uh, places for schools and clinics and things like that. So every year we've had a service learning project for that group that's gone to Costa Rica over the spring break. Thank you. I mean, I'm going to you know, I learned a lot here this week. It was, and I think the, the big takeaway for me was that it's not just disaster restoration guys. They're actually like the third group in essentially. You've got the the emergency responders in these large disasters, the emergency responders come in first, and then a group I don't think gets enough uh, recognition are the demolition guys that come in and assist the emergency responders right up front. I mean, they're in there helping make the area safer for the emergency responders to actually go in and try and, you know, help pull people out of the debris and so on and so forth. Then after that, our disaster restoration guys come in and, and continue with some of the cleanup, et cetera, helping coordinating with the emergency responders and the, uh, the, the demolition guys. And we had two people from the demolition world who presented here that did a, did a wonderful job. And actually, uh, maybe I could take this over to uh, Mark Charette, Dr. Charette. You, uh, you've worked in that world for many years. And um, I'm just curious, and, and being a guy that, for 30 years was in the private industry, home building, et cetera, et cetera. How was your, uh, what was your impression of how academia and the industry participants came together here and how they can help each other even more in the future? Well, there's actually a little bit of interesting history with the Demolition Association and Purdue. Uh, the Demolition Association has been for years sort of a, a homegrown industry where it was family-run businesses and as Buildings have aged in the United States. Uh, there's lots of opportunities. So these companies have grown, and they've grown beyond the capacity of their families. So they have a great need for especially middle managers in the running of demolition companies. They came to Purdue a few years ago and said, we'd really like to hire your students. Uh, how do we make this connection? Very similar to what was done with Randy and the disaster restoration business. Uh, and in reality, the program that exists at Purdue only exists because of the education that the industry gave to us to be able to combine basically our systems knowledge and our engineering knowledge with their process knowledge to be able to create a curriculum that 
gives them a good mesh between uh, the industry and academics. Yeah. You know, I happen to have liked the presentation that, that you did. Uh, that was probably my, my favorite one because it was very practical. And one of the things that I was uh, startled by was the fact that um, several of the major contractors who did the work after 9-11 went bankrupt. And you know, they went bankrupt because they burnt their equipment out. And I guess they didn't get paid properly and they didn't get paid uh, in, in timely fashion or, or the, the rates were renegotiated after they were agreed to or you know, all these reasons. And uh, you know, I just... I think it was three out of four, right? Was that correct, Mark? Well, there were actually more than four contractors involved in that uh, response. Right. Uh, but there were three prominent New York demolition contractors that suffered greatly economically uh, because of an issue that is is still ongoing in any disaster situation, and that is uh, generally first responder organizations don't have a great understanding of what demolition consists of. So when they call upon demolition contractors, the rate structure that they use for the use of equipment is based on construction activity instead of demolition activity. Uh, we've done a little bit of study, and if you're just using exactly the same piece of equipment, there's a 30 or 40 percent differential in terms of cost. Once you put a demolition tool on the piece of equipment, it can be 150 or 200 percent uh, in comparison to just running a backhoe for digging trenches. Uh, so when it comes time to make a claim for reimbursement, even if you're just willing to do it for cost, uh, the normal equipment rates that show in the balloon book, which is the common tool for, for those uh, kind of rate activities, doesn't work. I thought it was a great, I just learned a lot about how the demolition people work with the first responders and the disaster recovery people, the disaster restoration folks. And I think it's an opportunity that uh, I know Cliff and I will be doing more shows on demolition-related topics in the future because I think it ties so closely with the other topics we discuss. I think as testimony, I think the thing that I found even more startling was the effect that the, the representatives from the demolition industry said that they would willingly do it again, even knowing... And that was essentially the case. That was essentially the case in 9/11. I mean, right. people picked up their equipment and went to work, didn't ask any questions. Right. Uh, and and uh, Tom Starr, who was one of the, right. the speakers, actually made it a point that his organization had proactively sought cooperation with first responders to have agreements beforehand, so that when something happened, and you know, we, we're talking about really big response here, but every town has the fire here or the car that runs into a building where now the building is put in peril uh, and you don't want to call somebody from the street department with their street department equipment to try to deal with making that a safe situation. Yeah. All right, I, I, I want to get over to uh, Dr. Hubbard. He was the other co-chair here. And I kind of like to ask the same question that I asked uh, Dr. Cox. Of all these presentations, which one kind of stands out in your mind that, that you can give our listeners a little bit of, they weren't able to attend, let's give them a little, little pearl of wisdom from what your perspective was. Well, well, first of all, I'd reiterate what a lot uh, have said about the um, nice connection with industry and um, the academic piece, because that was important. Um, 
And I, I think we saw that through many of the different presentations. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed was actually the um, panel session um, that uh, uh, Pete Consigli ran from RIA, where we heard from many different um, components of the industry, the demolition, um, the, uh, the restoration side. But also there was an interesting presentation by uh, Monique Poulet, um, uh with the All Hands group. And um, uh, I, I, that's a volunteer organization that helps support in disasters. Uh, I thought it was very nice that she works with industry, not to be in competition with the industry. And I, I thought it was very beneficial for us as a university to see some of the different opportunities even for our students to get some experience and to participate with this organization. So I um, thought that was a, uh, was a very interesting presentation on how to manage volunteers in that sort of environment. And the all-hands folks actually kind of, a, they take the, the projects that, you know, aren't covered by insurance and don't necess aren't necessarily the people that can pay for disaster restoration services, right? And intentionally, they focus on the, the people that have the least. Uh, intentionally. And all over the world, too, which surprised me. I know I, I was aware of them in New York City after the uh, Superstorm Sandy, but I didn't know they were all over the world. Let's let start over and throw it over to uh, Pete Consigli for a moment. You're the only one we haven't heard from, Pete. What stood out in your mind? Well, I guess what stood out in my mind is that um, the interest level of all of the uh, the academics and plus the connections that most of them have to government, particularly in the international sector, uh, how interested they were in the information, and um, the uh, I guess if they just were uh, not aware that the industry uh, has standards. The standards are codified by you know using the ANSI process. You know more than one person had mentioned that. Uh, you know, the structure of our certification programs, uh, you know, how we qualify from entry level to journeyman and up to, you know, higher higher classifications like the certified restorer and, and water law specialist. Um, and uh, then, uh, you know, a, a good repeating message was uh, the uniqueness of, of Purdue to really be a world leader um, in developing a curriculum a concentration and potentially maybe in the not too distant future. Uh, Randy has his fingers crossed, will become a minor uh, under the BCM, that uh, I think there's going to be interest level in other parts of the world who want to basically follow down that path and start to develop through academia and other countries um, a similar program to, you know, to essentially help support that industry to build resilient communities, which is really the, the global initiative that Dr. Cox talked about and that um, really what the whole, the whole conference is all about. Let's throw, I want to put a toss-up question out there. Um, this is a unique program. You gentlemen have uh, done things that I don't think are being done anywhere else in the world that I'm aware of with respect to having this type of building construction management within uh, with a degree program, and actually graduate program. Uh, I'm just curious, what do other institutions, are they looking at this program? Are they kind of say, I realize it's not a, you know, you don't have 3,000 students, et cetera, but um, are they looking at it? Are they interested? Are they asking you questions? Uh, I can talk a little bit about the demolition side. Uh, with my interactions with the National Demolition Association, they realize that regionally we can't supply all of their needs. So 
their interest in having other universities add demolition content. We were actually the first program in the world to have a area of concentration that deals with demolition. Since we have started to reach out to other universities, uh, there is now a program at Texas A&M University that is offering a demolition course. Uh, Ohio State has a demolition course, and uh, University of California in Fresno uh, I just interacted with and sent them some material, and they should begin to start offering. And one of the things that I think has made the transition is um, there really wasn't a lot of written material to be able to help people get started. When I got started, I really got the help from the industry. I mean, basically, I spent two summers out in the field with demolition contractors all over the United States. Actually, I went to a few places in the U.K. as well uh, to learn this business. Uh, and I since then worked with uh, a long-term company owner in the demolition world and uh, co-authored a textbook. So now there is a textbook. Randy has done something simpler, similar in the disaster restoration industry. So you've got a demolition textbook. But that's the focus on that. You've got you've got one for restoration. I've, I've read it. It's great stuff. And then I assume you use that in the class. Absolutely. For both courses, particularly the project management course, the second one. Can you tell us a little bit about how you pulled that together? Did you have a group of people helping with that? Where do you got your resources? It's I know it's focused at disaster recovery, correct? Yeah, disaster restoration, I guess. Much of it comes from uh, whatever I could take out of literature that had been published. Certainly there was information from RIA, from other folks who have had some interaction. Uh, and, and a lot of it just comes from experience with Katrina, Wilma, and Restore Rocky Oil. Okay. So, okay. So your your physical experience out in the field, Restore Rocky Oil. Talk, talk to us just for a minute about that, Randy. I mean, Restore Rocky Oil. Were there what were the similarities? What, what were you able to take from that program and bring to this program? Well, I think the main thing is just the size and the the fact that you. You have a lot of work that needs to be done, and you don't know what you're going to encounter until you get into it. And even when you've got this process, uh, these, these many plants, these many facilities with process uh, equipment, until you repair one part that's damaged, you, you're not really sure what what needs to be fixed upstream. And, and so there are a lot of uncertainties, um, just the logistical side of things and, and you know, in, in environments that are not pleasant. And, uh, you know, what restorers are used to that. They, that's where they show up in these major regional disasters. It's, it's a very unpleasant environment. You've got to have the stuff with you that you need. It's hard to get the things you need in a timely way, so you've got to plan well. And you've got to execute, uh, you know, kind of on a shoestring sometimes. And, and so there, there's a lot of similarity in the management. You know, I also want to point out that... Uh Rusty Amarante from Belfort was one of the speakers Pete, uh, Pete brought in, and he did a great job of of explaining to people how uh, how prepared you have to be. You know I mean, to go and respond, you can't. You've got no fuel. You've got no electric. You've got no place for your guys to sleep. You've got um, you know no. I mean, no everything. They have it down from soup to nuts, from water to underwear. Believe it or not, they actually have Belfort underwear that. They give to, to their workers because it's easier to give them fresh clothes than it is to get stuff laundered in a disaster zone. And this is all stuff you kind of learn the hard way, you know, from experience. You get there and 
Hey, Joe, I want to bring one thing. I know we're getting close to doing the midway break, but I want to tie in some, on what the, on the book deal with that Mark talked about and Randy talked about. The key thing with the development of the books that both of these professors have done, they, they did them in conjunction with industry. So the NDA supported, uh, you know, the book uh, when Mark wrote it. And when Randy wrote it, he got a lot of support from the industry. And there's a whole uh, chapter, a whole section in there that a lot of the local uh, uh, members uh, gave pictures of photos and equipment and things like that. So it's very, it's very industry-specific tied in with, uh, with his experience, you know, in Iraqi when he was at Halbert. So and both associations promoted the books, gave them, sold them to their members, had them on the websites and all that. So this is the meshing of industry uh, and academia so that, that, that the students in the Purdue program are being taught what industry wants them to be taught. It's part of the curriculum so that they'll actually hire them because there's no point in getting a college degree if you can't get a job afterwards. And that's the relationship of the two working together so that they mesh. And I think that's an extremely important point, at least in development of those two particular concentrations. And, I, you know, Professor Cox and Hubbard could probably comment on other analogies and some, maybe some of the other concentrations. Do I have time to uh, yeah, sure. uh, Absolutely. So, so you, you mentioned or asked this question about uh, other programs like this in the U.S. or the world. One of our commitments when we started both of these areas of concentration in our undergraduate programs was when the industry sought us out to actually help meet future needs, we realized that Purdue can't do that alone. So our commitment was once we get the, the baseline set of materials so that once we basically can get something that you could replicate, that we would share that freely. And so the idea is that we would become basically the incubator and then share those good materials, lessons learned, and the like, so that we do meet the needs of the industry. Are there programs like this in, like, the community colleges? I mean, is there similar? I don't know who could think that. On restoration, I think that's where you'll find uh, you'll find the programs, predominantly community college level. And we've sent some of our uh, some of our curriculum materials to some of those folks when they've asked or we've offered. Um, I'm unaware of any other four-year institution, certainly not a major research university like Purdue, that offers anything like this. Now, maybe it's out there and I just don't know. There was some talk about Canada maybe offering something like that, uh, but I'm just not sure that has actually occurred yet. Any two-year degrees out there you're familiar with, two-year associate programs? Short answer, yes. I can't remember the names of okay. them are, but, but I've, I've heard that there are some either process of being developed or recently developed. I work with Greenville Technical College a lot. I go down there two times a year and they, but theirs isn't a degree program. It's in the School of Continuing Education, I believe. And I think that's where more commonly you'll find these kind of programs. And this is a unique, I think it's a very unique situation. What, how do you get the support? For, I don't know who started this. How did it get started? How do you get the support from the you know the big guys up top that are maybe I have some of the big guys here. I don't know. Um, how do you get that support? Well, um, let, let's go back almost 15 years. Um, Dwayne, has it been that long when Bob Bonwell? So it's over 10 years. So, so Bob Bonwell from Advantage Marketing uh, actually his first cousin was the dean of the College of Technology when Don Gentry was the dean of the college and. For whatever reason, uh, Bob was here visiting, and he saw our lab in, in the basement of Kanoi Hall, and all of a sudden he started realizing that the College of Technology and Building Construction Management could be the place 
that could help the restoration industry. And so that's when the whole thing started, was on the, on the idea that how can we get restoration into a four-year degree program offering? And so uh, with people like Bob and Cliff, Cliff has heard the sales pitch, I know, right. multiple times. Uh, and people like Frank Heaton and all these people, they, they embraced it. They started realizing that, you know, the contributions that they made to the endowment to actually create this was going to take time and baby steps. And, you know, basically I'm, I'm happy to say that we've, we've, we have continued to produce students in the restoration uh, specialization. We had a similar story with NBA and, and uh, Mike Taylor. Um, and that started before, even before I got here, but it wasn't quite 10 years ago. It was probably, yeah, it was probably 10 years ago. I think it was, it was 2004. 2004. It 10 years ago. And so uh, we were very fortunate to have uh, Kevin Bailing and, and Mark Charette both involved in the, the demolition relationship at the time. And it basically just grew and it came out of a, a nice set of seat monies and multiple uh, demolition contractors uh, contributing to uh, a gift account which then made it a, a, a possible for us to support Mark as he went out and did the research for the body of knowledge for the textbook. And I mean, you, you basically it's, it's one of those things that our goal is, like I told you at the industry reception, is to make sure that our students are impactful and make a difference on the business's bottom line when they leave Purdue. And so what we did was we, we found out what the needs were of the industry and we asked the industry for help in both situations so that we could enable that to happen. All right, so can I go ahead? Um, I, I think one thing that's important to note here, um, uh, especially for your listeners, there there always seems to be, um, and and there's there's a lot of reasons for this, a real disconnect with um, industry and academics. And if you look at the global higher ed community, there really is um, uh, over the years. Um, our science and engineering programs have gone to much more theoretical research. And um, our College of Technology and our, our BCM program has really always bucked that trend. Um, you can see through these two programs, but even with all our construction um, courses that we teach, we're strongly linked with industry. We listen to industry. We want their um, support in the classroom. We want to know what's going on. We want to interact with them to know how we can improve our grads and what skills they need to be successful in these industries. And so I, that's really what drew me actually to these different programs is the strong connection to industry and that commitment, as was noted, to, to really, um, supply um, a person to the industry that's knowledgeable. So when you get a, a student out of, say, our DRRM, or Disaster Restoration and Reconstruction Management Program, they are, they're equipped and they're ready to go to hit in the industry and be a project manager in those, in those areas. And that's an area we need, we need people in. You know, it's tough. You can, you can bring them up through the ranks, but it really helps if you've got the academic and the experience put together. And we've got to take a little break and thank our sponsors. Uh, this is Radio Joe Hughes with a distinguished group of uh, conference folks from the Purdue University. We'll be back in about a minute and 30 seconds, 90 seconds or so. But we're going to stop and thank our sponsors.
thanks to our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, this is Radio Joe. We're back with uh, the doctors, I'm going to say. Mark Charette, we've got uh, Robert Cox, Randy Rapp, Brian Hubbard, and, of course, Pete Consigli's helping us. Uh, he's a doctor in communications, I believe. Uh, anyway, Pete's the marketing guy. I'll tell you what, you can't go anywhere without Pete. All right, now let's set this up here. We're going to take a group photo with the background. He's a great guy. Pete, let's, I want you to set up this next uh, little segment, please. Well, I, to build on what we kind of finished up before the break, and everybody was weighing in on the relationship that uh, industry and uh, and the academia and the program working together, so that the students can be, um, you know, when they graduate, they'll they'll have, uh, they'll have some job offers. So a couple of things that we're doing in restoration is, and that I have advocated when I get a chance to talk to students, is after the junior year, and when they know they're going to want to be going down the road to get into the industry. A couple things they need to do is they need to get some internships, and the industry offers that summer internship. They're actually out there on the job. You know, it's great to come out, out of college and say, I want to be a project manager, but, you know, unless you've been on that truck and uh, sucking out water, carrying those air movers, or getting behind, you know, digging a ditch, getting behind a piece of demo equipment, you need to get some of that underneath your belt. So, you know, you just don't think you're going to just jump from college right into bossing people around. You won't get the respect. So do the interns, you do it. In our industry in particular, I can't comment for the demo, but we have, you know, our certification classes. A lot of these students uh, have gone to, to, like, Kirk Bolden's one that's really jumped in. They're only about 40 miles away. Very low-cost training. Students will go down and take WRT, ASD, some of these courses. So that could take two years off when, when they, uh, if industry wants to hire them, that they don't have to send them to the classes to do all that, and they're in a much better position. You add that to a four-year degree. So how do, we, uh, how do we then give them that access? Work-study groups, they come to convention. And it's been 2010 that uh, Randy's been leading a group of uh, the, the students from Purdue, not just the, 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 you know, in the DRM program, but some of the Ph.D. students have come down. And, uh, and in my understanding that Mark has been doing that with the NDA for, since 2004, 2005. So they're interacting at the conventions with the contractors, going through the expo hall, do, doing some work. Uh, they're doing some work for the associations to help out with staff tasks and things of this nature. So I think uh, I think it'd be great to have Mark and uh, Randy kind of comment in that perspective, build on that before we move back to some of the you know get back to some conference related questions. 
Yeah, before we do, uh, well, Dr. Cox, you mentioned something on the break. I just wanted to, to point out that um, we're talking about how there was more technology than you realized when you when you got more involved in, in understanding what the demolition people do, what the restoration people do. Maybe you could comment on that for a minute. Well, I, I can tell you from my own experience, um, I had a flood in my home in Florida and uh, from a pipe bursting, of all things, and uh, lost all of my first floor hardwood. And the first thing they did was they come in and they ripped it out. And not even uh, a year later, I'm at the RIA uh, conference down in Lake Buena Vista, and I go around and I'm learning that, you know, I didn't have to do that that there's technology available to effectively dry. And, of course, I think about all the issues that I dealt with personally, and that's just one of the technologies, the drying technologies, and, and the moisture monitoring and, and, and all the different chemicals that people like Cliff have come up with to, to do some great cleaning. Um, and then when you go to, to the NDA, my first you know, opportunity of meeting people from the NDA was just how advanced the equipment is gotten in like six or eight years because all of my demolition experience in the construction industry was with the standard you know, 235 cat excavator with no special bucket on it, no, no, no cleaves, nothing like that. Of course, that was before we were doing a lot of recycling too, and so it was more or less let's just tear it down instead of take it or dismantle it. And so that's just two examples, but because if you look at it, that's one of the reasons there's a a great demand for our students is you got to have some more technically savvy. You have to have people that aren't afraid of technology, that have grown up with it, and everything from operating things from remote or distance yeah. uh, is part of it. And and I think that those were the ahas I had. That was great. Um, you, you brought back a, a memory from the conference for me, and that was in the demolition section where they said, "We don't, you know, we don't use a wrecking ball anymore." You know, those days are over. I, I don't think like it was fun for me. I, I just don't think people realize that. I, you know, I, I still think of the, you know, there's the wrecking ball. You smash the building down, and then you pick it up. You know, now they they disassemble them a little differently nowadays. So I thought that was very interesting. I think one of the things that's unique and different is uh, I've been personally frustrated by, you know, MBAs. They go go to college. The professor never really worked in a business. And they (laughs) study books about businesses. And all of a sudden this person graduates and they think that they know a lot about business. And they go out in the real world and I think they find out that they don't. And this is just, this is the way to do it. I think what you're doing, the students are involved, they're, they're engaged, you know, they've been there, uh, they have some battle scars uh, before they graduate, and they're better prepared. It's, it's, you know, it's almost, I think, in many ways, almost like military training, I think, in, in some ways, the, the way that it's done. And, and, Cliff, it's important to note that all our faculty have worked in the construction industry. That's... Uh, um, that's part of when we hire. Uh, that's a that's a tag that we put on the application side. They need- Every one of these guys has been there and done that. Right, right, right. One more quick thing I remember that stood out to me, and I know Cliff pointed this out when uh, uh, Rusty was talking on the industry panel. He talked about how in some of these disaster situations they would bring in this nice equipment and trucks full of fuel and. 
it would get commandeered by the government. They would just take it from them. It's like, we need this over here. Oh, yeah. uh, that was, I, I kind of knew that happened, but I didn't realize how, uh, how often it happened. And that it happened to them pretty, you know, I wouldn't say regularly, but it happened enough that he brought it up in the, in the I, I think we realized that after Katrina, when we went yeah. down and visited Frank, he had this very elaborate shower system set up so that his workers would be able to uh, take hot showers. <laughs> that, was, that was from the movie industry. These were the trailers that they have on site from the movies. They bought those, and they used them, they set the logistics up for that. But look, even uh, Tom and Jerry, who spoke from the demo industry, they later said that they have had the same experiences. It's like this eminent domain. The government comes in, they see something under national security. They basically commandeer it. They give you a P.O., and they say, you know, we'll pay you what we think it's worth when we get around to it. Now, they don't actually say it like that. But, but, you know, so, yeah, so. There's an interesting theme going around the table, uh, and, and that's a lack of understanding of what really goes on. And in the demolition industry, the typical view of a demolition is one of two things. It's either a guy with a backhoe and a pickup truck who hasn't changed his clothes in a week, has got mud all over his face, and he's a mess, or a guy that goes out and blows stuff up. Uh, and those are both the minority of what goes on. Uh, and what you've talked about in things being commandeered is the sophisticated demolition industry has those things that they use every day, day in and day out. If you've got individuals going in to do a demolition project, they're going to be exposed to all kinds of hazards. You don't want them leaving the job site with that stuff on them. So people come in, they put on clothes that are specific to the project. At the end of the day, or actually at break time, they wash up. They don't eat anything unless they're clean. And at the end of the day, they give their clothes back to somebody who launders them. They take a shower and they move on. And they actually have uh, regularly brought onto the job site uh, sanitary facilities to make sure that that happens. Mark, one of the questions that uh, Cliff had, and I don't if I jump in here for your question, Cliff. Um, in the video and in other presentations, we didn't notice a whole lot of dust suppression. Can you talk a little bit about dust suppression on these demolition projects? Do we have an hour? <laughs> <laughs> because dust, dust is an issue, uh, and you have, you have all extremes. If we go back to those implosion setups, there isn't any such thing as dust suppression because you just can't. Uh, the advantage is it goes away pretty fast, so you just clean up. But on the typical demolition project, yeah, that's a day-in and day-out process. Now, if I'm in a setting where I don't have a pretty building or automobiles or a house somewhere close by, I'm going to come out with fire hoses and I'm just going to wet down the material. Wet material is going to have a tendency to release less dust, so that's... Uh, but over the last 15 or 20 years, what has really developed is uh, a, a bit more sophisticated way to deal with dust suppression. And that is instead of making everything real wet, uh, they utilize a piece of equipment that actually has its, its birth in the uh, snowmaking business. Uh, they use the snowmaking machines and they change the nozzles on them. So it creates a water dot droplet that's about the right size to, cut, to coat the dust particles you can coat the individual dust particle and it falls to the ground. You don't have to make everything soaking wet, so you use less water. Uh, you don't have to have somebody out there with a the fire hose spraying things down. 
where you go back to that direct wedding arrangement usually happens right at the tool. So now we've, we're back to this excavator. The excavator has got a tool at the end. Well, right there at the tool is a fire hose that wets exactly where you're working. So those are sort of the big projects. But then you've got dust suppression that's very similar to what disaster, disaster restoration might get involved with, uh, and that's work within an enclosure. So if I'm doing a work within a building, I may close in the building, uh, create a negative air pressure environment, and as the air exhausts the building, use a HEPA filter to clean it. If I'm doing work in an isolated section, if I'm in this building and I just want to work in this, this one spot, I may actually create an enclosure right there uh, to keep all the dust in place. Uh, so it actually runs the, the full range from no control all the way through suppression to uh, negative air being pretty much dust control where you actually aren't releasing much of anything at all. So closing the whole operation, yeah. basically. And that can happen on a really big scale. Uh, I took my students to a demolition project on the Purdue campus where they were removing uh, a 30-year-old coal boiler within a building that had six other boilers. Uh, and the demolition contractor created an enclosure around that boiler so the rest of the operation could continue while they were doing work within that enclosure. You know, it's, I have one for Brian. Uh, I know that you have nuclear experience with power plants, and you know, we chatted about that at dinner the other night. And, you know, I was wondering uh, if you could just comment on you know, Fukushima. I, I figured a lot of people were nervous, and that you might have been more nervous than other people because you probably uh, had a greater degree of knowledge. Yeah, well, it, it is interesting that the, the Fukushima disaster was incredibly unfortunate for obviously the people of Japan, the whole the whole nuclear industry, um, and it just goes to show how difficult it is to plan for disasters, um, a unique situation with both the earthquake and the tsunami. Um, uh, in the financial world, that would be a true black swan type of event. And uh, with all types of disasters, once we see one of these things like this happen, it does help us prepare for the next one. And I, I think that was a common theme of the conference, this term of resilience, where we're looking at what has happened in the past and trying to prepare, prepare our communities, um, prepare what's going on. Specifically, in the Fukushima case, I, I did used to do a lot of um, work in the, the nuclear sector, specifically with um, cooling systems. Um, uh, while it was going on, I was quite surprised that um, things couldn't be done differently. Um, we often set up um, temporary cooling, even emergency cooling on, on nuclear systems. Um, there are great rental companies from around the world that have that equipment. Um, and uh, when this was going on, it just seemed impossible to me that they couldn't get that facility cool. Now, given that and what I've seen post and, the, and what was actually going on, I can much better understand what the difficulties they were having, given the complete loss of their their infrastructure, their all their transportation systems. And so um, I think it's just a, a lesson to us all that it's it's difficult in these disaster situations to really pre predict what can happen and to get those prepared. All right. Let's go to the roundup, Jess. What I think what I'd like to do, Cliff, is just give everybody a last 
Chut, uh, unless you have some questions you want, or Pete, you have anything specific? Well, I think we, we may have one final one for Dr. Clark. All right, let's do that. Why don't we ask that, and then let everybody, if you would, just think about if you have a final word for our listeners that, you know, something we missed, you'd like to add, something that happened at the conference that you'd like them to know okay, about. You know, before, before you go to Dr. Cox with the last question to kind of wrap the panel up, I wanted to kind of tie into something that Cliff said a little bit earlier that maybe kind of fits with the team when he was talking about these MBAs and these guys getting out of college and they have no field experience. The um, it, it, it's, it's kind of like they teach them all about it and they didn't have anything practical and they want to kind of go to work, you know, go to work and then they find in the real world what it's like to business. That kind of is a testament to what we're kind of doing here at, you know, what we see. It's like we now, but what Purdue is doing is, is that they're, by doing the internships and getting the experience, not only do they have the academic and they have the, you know, the credentials of a four-year degree, but now they're really prepared to, to actually go to work. Well, what, what we found out, Cliff, through a friend of ours, and I don't even know if I shared this story, but you brought it up, but back in the 90s, Cliff and myself worked with University City Science Center to doing their air quality training in, uh, in, in Pennsylvania. And two of the ladies that we ran that program was Sue Smith and Charlotte T. Ender. Charlotte, talked to her not too long ago, is working at Drexel now in Philadelphia in the MBA program, and she said the students that are coming to MBA program are actually doctors and lawyers. And what's happened is they interned and learned how to do their profession, but they didn't learn how to run a business. So now, after all that experience, they realize that they actually don't know how to run a business and also actually know their profession, they can't serve the needs you know, to do what they're doing. So I kind of thought that was an interesting connection. They finally figured it out. So anyway. <laughs> All right, Jess, let's go to the roundup. I want to say hello to Dr. Wah. Oh, you want to do? Oh, well, you can do the roundup. Go ahead, Jess. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up. Raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out. Ride him in, thread, 
you know, everybody focuses on that, and we forget which college we're from. Or, you know, so it's, a, it's an ideal thing. Yeah. And I, I might add that in addition to everything that you pointed out, you'll never meet a group of people that are more welcoming, more, more easy to get along with, more friendly, more interested in what you do, how you collaborate with others. Um, people from all over the world were just, you know, very, very happy with how they were treated here, and um, you know, it's a great, great campus. I mean, you can't, can't go wrong. I, I, I was going to say the food had a lot. That helps. That helps. Uh, hey, Jess, let's bring in uh, another doctor, the good doctor, Doctor Dietrich Wow. Yes, I'm here. All right, there. Any comments or questions for the crew? Well, yeah, that certainly is not my area of expertise, but I do. Yeah, I, I, I certainly would uh, uh, like to have technicians, whatever you want to call them, well trained. I like uh, the mechanic who works on my car to be well trained. I don't know whether he needs a college degree. On the other hand, they seem to have a niche over there and perhaps the only place where this type of activity is being taught. I have no problem with that. And uh, we heard that before. I was thinking about it is tough to train somebody uh, to react correctly at a, uh, a catastrophe. We call a catastrophe a catastrophe because it's out of the ordinary. You know, uh, we, 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 we all know how to clean up a frying pan or something like that, or even a grill outdoors. But, I mean, if something there's boom and it is all of a sudden I mean, completely uh, out of the ordinary, uh, that is tough to be to be over there. Now I feel for those people who have to do the job, and you may have to improvise as you are going about it to take care of the situation. I can understand that, but uh, the other thing that I'm kind of was uh, interested in is dust suppression. I did that 50, uh, 40 years ago. Uh, we tried to suppress dust respirable dust in coal mines and the, the the typical water spray does not do that job because the particles that you can generator generate with a, a a an aerosolizer that being water uh, it is tough to get that to a, sm a small particle size that you can actually get at the respirable dust in American coal mines, approximates 8.2 micrometers in diameter, aerodynamic equivalent diameter. So, but on the other hand, yes, you can suppress the dust. There's no doubt about it. But don't think that you don't have, uh, after you visually reduce the dust, that you don't have an inhalation hazard. It's the stuff that you can't see that will hurt you. That's a great point, Peter. And I, I think... Uh... Mark Charette may, may have another comment on that, because and Dr. Hubbard, go ahead. I, I have a, a comment about that, too, and I, I think what's important for the listeners to note is um, 
OSHA has really clamped down on the dust situation just for the construction industry in general, and specifically um, uh, dust that contains silica. So anytime you're grinding, cutting concrete, asphalt, anything with any sort of sand material. Um, and uh, as part of that, I think they've cut their allowable limits in half in the last year. And so that's something to keep track of, to understand, to know what the limits are and take precautions. Um, uh, as was noted, it is, it is difficult to suppress dust. Um, uh, there are techniques, though, where, say, if you're cutting a blade, where you're flooding the blade, um, that will cut down some of both the, the visual and the respirable dust. Um, but also um, respiratory uh, systems are, uh, may need to be put in place as well, which I think the restoration industry is very well versed in putting people in uh, respirators and those types of things. And I think the demolition industry too, right? Wow. Yeah, and that actually would have been my response as well. Now, there, there's sort of a bigger issue with the, the in, environmental dust that spreads beyond the job uh, that, that is another subject altogether. But in terms of the worker, the demolition industry is very proactive in terms of making sure that uh, every worker wears the appropriate PPE to protect them in that particular setting. And actually, uh, I don't remember if it was Tom or Jerry at the, the meeting talked specifically about the demolition industry and how proactive they've been in enforcement of that. Yeah, they've been really good. I did. I I noticed that at the presentation, and, and they specifically pointed out the training requirements for PPE, et cetera, before they started the job, and everybody had their equipment, you know, and they had been trained on it. They went out and they used it. It wasn't a big deal to them. They were That's what they do, you know, on a daily basis. Well, and they, they also pointed out that, uh, that one of the perceptions was that they had high incidence with OSHA infractions and things, and when OSHA actually studied the industry, they said they, that they had one of the lowest in industry. So that's kind of the perception of they don't ride the wrecking balls up anymore. They're very sophisticated, and they, they're very very tuned into health and safety. And that maybe was a misconception that they certainly dispelled. I think one of the things that uh, Tom Starr brought up was um, about the bladder cancer. About, I think it was arson investigators or fire investigators had this very high incidence uh, of bladder cancer. And, again, you know, our industry seems to be more focused on mold than anything else, and, and fire-related particulate is a hazard, and I think that people that do that type of work need to, number one, be properly protected, and then the companies that do that work need to be properly compensated for the work that they do and the hazards uh, that are there. Agreed. Let's go around real quick and wrap things up. Anything we missed that you'd like to add? Dr. Randy Rapp. Uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, not a whole lot. We covered so much, and, and it's all good information. I guess the main thing that I, uh, I think about is in the context of education industry, and, uh, you know, we're going to continue to move ahead as, as we go on in time here, uh, trying to stay closely linked to industry. Even the textbook that we talked about before, uh, that comes from some research, or the subject matter at least, comes to some extent from research that we did involving a Ph.D. student all the folks of RIA were offered the chance to contribute, and, and from it we developed the body of knowledge that goes into that plus into the courses that we have. And then later on that was, was used, or at least it, uh, somewhat referred to, in the development of the certified restorer body of knowledge. So, you know, th th this, uh, this combination of industry and academe getting together is a strong one. It's a powerful one. It benefits both. 
And, uh, you know, we're going to do whatever we can to develop that even further as time goes on. Thank you. Let's go over to Dr. Mark Charette. Anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I want to tie the, the last comment that Cliff made with something that uh, Brian Hubbard made. Uh, Cliff's comment was about the, the damage that fire first responders have suffered because of their lack of recognition of a hazard. Uh, and it really ties into this idea of what we learned from past hazards, and that is you really need to have the right people with the right equipment in the right place at the right time. And that takes pre-planning, uh, and that's not taking place. In the demolition world, there are companies who are prepared to deal with hazards because they deal with them on a day-in and day-out basis. They know how to identify them, they know how to characterize them, and they know how to protect against the damage that comes from them. Uh, what's not happening today is uh, first responder groups are not making pre-arrangements with those groups that have the skills and the equipment and the knowledge to be there when they need them. Uh, and that's the only way they're going to make it happen is with pre-arrangement. That's a great point. We had a, a show, and I can't remember who it was, and they, they emphasized how important it was to for the disaster restoration guys to get involved in the local, because they have exercises all the time, and to offer your services or volunteer to help out, and then you get to know those guys, too. And then, you know, obviously, if something comes up, who are they going to call? The people they know. So, great point. Let's turn it over to Dr. Brian Hubbard. Any final comments? So, first of all, I'd like to say uh, thank the restoration industry for their support of what we do here. And I, I, I think it's important to, to, when we look at the restoration industry, I see this in the global sense as a fairly young industry. And I think what um, Randy, with the support of the restoration industry, is doing is really groundbreaking to develop this body of knowledge, this understanding, both tying the knowledge of the restoration industry with the construction management piece. And I would encourage any of our listeners who's got – um, uh, uh, some uh, strong people that may need some more education, that, that they're looking for some more education, maybe looking for that college degree, you know, sons, daughters, to really to look at our program if you really want to get a strong foundation to, to move into this, a strong college degree. So um, our, our website is tech.purdue.edu. And you put a slash VCM for building construction management, have information about our program. Um, we would love to see young people or, you know, of all ages come into our program and um, go through our coursework to be better prepared for the restoration industry. Brings up a question. Is any of the program online now so that for those that are maybe not as close as, you know, uh, we would like, maybe they could pick up some of the prerequisites online or is that in the plans? to have a master's degree that is done online. Uh, it is actually taught real-time, and it's taught in the evenings, so uh, active professionals can get involved. Uh, it does require that someone already has a bachelor's degree, but entry into the program doesn't say you have to have any particular bachelor's degree. It actually says you need to have five years of field experience, and once you have that, uh, we've had people with all kinds of undergraduate degrees enter the program. And, but I think what you're talking about, Joe, is disaster restoration or demolition or something like that being online. Yeah, and we talked about that three years ago, and the short answer is no. Uh, can we do it? Yes. We've done the marketing study. It would be highly viable. It's just a question of time. Okay. So we'll look that into the future. We'll look at it. All right. Online. Dr. Cox, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I have, I have two things. First, um, one, of the, one of the things that everybody has to realize is that when we embraced uh, restoration, and disaster restoration and reconstruction management, 
our whole mindset had to change. Because if you look at it, construction management as a profession has always been proactive. You're planning. You have all this execution that you're going to do for a major project. Schedule this, boom, 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 right? It was, you estimated. You had a quantity of work. You knew what you were going to do. So when we embrace this, the whole idea is trying to create. You're, you're going completely against that. While that's all preparation, the idea of actually creating people that can think on their feet and do triage and be reactionary managers and leaders versus proactive, right? In other words, it, it was it was very different. So we know that it takes a whole different mindset or characteristic to be really, really successful in that side. So it, it, it attracts a, a different type of split, if you will. The other thing is I, I, wanted to, I wanted to echo the fact that uh, having the industry participants and all of you here um, was really value added to this international conference. And um, I want to I want to thank you on behalf of Purdue University and the College of Technology for actually being here, taking time out of your professional lives to to actually contribute greatly to the overall experience for our conference attendees. And I would hope that you all had the same value added for your experience. Any final comments? Yeah, I mean, I I think that where I see the where we can move it to the next level is that um, the universities are basically the, the melting pots to do research. And if government, you know, if there's going to be regulations and laws and, co and codes and things that, is that you know, affect the, the industries that we work in, government normally looks to academia to do the research to validate that. And it's this connection of working with industry. I think that industry needs research. And I think we're probably grown to the point now that we can help support it and work in collaboration. So I think that I think that's a big one. My other final takeaway, really, from uh, just moderating the panel and meeting all the international people, I did. I think, uh, and Randy had mentioned this earlier. There, there's a feeling now that they would like to kind of build on this. So some of our Australian and, and Kiwi members may not know this, but I'm going to be hoping I'm going to be uh, they will be flying to Seoul next year to uh, to. Uh, you know, kind of pick up with the local members there and maybe uh, interact. I think there was a was a high interest level that they would like to see that. And um, we didn't really talk about the the Brits, but uh, you know, the Brits, a couple of the, the professors uh, from the UK that spoke, you know, uh, shared some terrific information about how they're you know collaborating over there and how the government is very proactively you know getting involved with to build these these resilient communities. So it's it's a global thing, and through the net through the associations. And academia working with the nonprofits in this—that's the connection. And, and anybody who's listening, and you get a chance to talk, um, you know, this is big picture stuff. And um, I think that's really how, how we all can move together, and we can we collaborate and benefit together. So anyway, that's my final point. I, uh, I I've just enjoyed working for doing. I look forward to continuing to doing it. All right, and, and look to the future because the next uh, I3R2 conference is going to be at the University of Seoul in August of 2015. So. Stay tuned. All right. So this Cliff, anything? Uh, no, I'm good. All right. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thank you so much to the doctors. We've got, uh, and of course, the doctor of communications. <laughs> uh, we've got, uh, I want to just say thanks to Dr. Charette, uh, Dr. Oh, Hubbard, Dr. Cox, and Dr. Rapp for joining us. And of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, the other good doctor, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Jess, great job in the studio once again, no glitches. 
The Z-Man and I are going to take the week off next week. We'll be back in two weeks from today with another doctor, an MD this time, Dr. Hung Chung. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, Healthy Building Professionals and the Healthy Building Summit coming up Seven Springs this year, August 20 through 22. I hope some of the listeners can join us there. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks for joining us this week. Thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll see you in two weeks from today for the next episode of IAQ Radio. Thank you.